0: Blog Talk
1: Radio.
0: The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows LIVE.
2: Hi, my name is John Carasella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows LIVE. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, Gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that, in some way or another, bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome to Convergence. I'm John Carasella, and I'm here this morning, as usual, with my Crazy collection of cantankerous cohorts and co-hosts, Deb. Good morning, Mildred Lynn.
3: Good morning, and
2: Hi C. Hello. So this morning, I, I want to talk about it's it's a time of year of where there's a lot of growth happening, um, especially out here in California. The gardens are going like gangbusters. The sun is out. Um, I know that's not necessarily true in all parts of the country, but we're 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 in springtime, and you know, spring is about growth, and um, one of the things that we can sort of take a look at is where do we want to apply our growth energy or our growth effort and intention? And, um, you know, there's, I think there's varying schools of thoughts on this, but, you know, there are things that you're good at, and there's things that you're not so good at, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes I think we are inclined, or we've been taught, to spend a bunch of our energy, a bunch of our intention, trying to shore up where we're weak, to, to sort of grow around our weaknesses. But then there's, there's another way of thinking about it, uh, and that is to lean into your strengths and, and build on your strengths. And I just wanted to invite a conversation about where do you, where do you put your growth energy? What do you, for, you know, thinking about it this way, what are you good at? Why are you good at that particular thing? How much of your life energy do you do you give to that part of yourself? And if it's a lot, it would sound like you're sort of leaning into your strengths and building on your strengths and if you and if you're not, um, maybe it's because you're working on your weaknesses. But the question would be like why? Why do you why do you put that amount of energy in the places where you're strong? And why do you put whatever amount of energy you put into the places where you're weak? Anybody have any thoughts on that they'd like to share?
3: Um, John, it's Mildred Lynn. So I loved your question because it really made me ponder how I see things. And the thought of having strengths and weaknesses, I have to be honest, doesn't even come into my consciousness. So I had to look at why. Why is that? And what I realized is that, for me, I don't recognize strengths and I don't recognize weaknesses. To me, it's all having an experience. And if I had to put it in the strength or weakness box, I'd ask myself, compared to what? So in terms of experiencing life, if I looked at this or that, I could approach it from a perspective of being more capable or less capable, mm. or having more capacity or less less capacity
2: right. to experience.
3: Okay. Yeah, so that's so for me. I really liked your question because it took me on a little journey.
2: So, so rather than strengths and weaknesses, maybe um, the things that you're good at and things that you're not so good at.
3: Well, for me, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I don't look at myself as being good at something and not good at something else. I look at myself being in alignment with my life purpose. And so if I'm looking at from that model, good and not so good aren't relevant. It's not the language of that.
2: Ah, so it's, if I can maybe spin that back. Um, you, you Rather than think about applying your energy to building your strengths or shoring up your weaknesses or um, doing what you're good at or exploring what you're not good at, it's what you really do is focus on finding how to how to express yourself into your life purpose into your that's highest it. life purpose.
3: That's it. That's it. Exactly. And and you can't help but feel feel good about yourself from that perspective.
2: Oh, well, that's a handy technique.
3: so it's nice and fulfilling just how I like it
2: (laughs) okay all right well anybody any of us lesser mortals have a a thought about this that's not fair
1: that's not fair oh
2: but you're a Leo you're a Leo it's okay I'm a humble Leo Uh.
0: (laughs) well I do um, and mine's going to sound really facetious and I don't mean it that way I'm I'm very much um, uh, in earnest I'm actually pretty good at nothing. And I mean that from the point of view of I just I I also thought about this um the way Mildred was thinking about it when when the question was posed and it's I have many many talents and I have what could be considered strengths and what could be considered weaknesses um like any person. Um but what I'm really good at and where I'm uh, what I really how I live is just by being. And um, once I thought about it, it's like, in a way, it's coasting. Some people would think of it as coasting. Um, but that's not completely true because coasting implies non, um, non-engagement. And that's not true because I, I do engage. I engage with my own life. I engage with the lives of others and the, the world around me. But what I'm really, really um tuned to is just being and experiencing and um allowing, I guess. And I probably devote most of my energy to that, to being that, to living that, to to being in that state. And I am aware where of areas where I could become um, more proficient, or, or I have a particular weakness. Um, I also am aware of areas where I have a particular uh, aptitude or, or, or a talent, perhaps. But I don't spend a lot of energy trying to in, in, I don't invest a lot of energy in increasing or or applying energy in any of those places. It's, it, what is, 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 and I'm there.
2: So what's your, what's what, one of your strengths, I guess, is being. Yeah. Uh, and so, and you, and you are delighted to continue to invest yourself in that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to putter and I like to tinker and I like to, you know, try new things and, and explore things and just kind of be and allow life and, and, everything to kind of unfold around me. I don't search things out. Um, but when they're there or when they show up, if they have a particular, you know, if they tickle my interest in a particular way, I'll follow them a little bit and see what happens and see where that goes. And maybe I'll stay there and keep on going. And other, maybe I'll say, oh, that was fun. And, oh, there's something else to do now. And I'll go do that.
2: Hmm. So so for both you and Mildred Lynn, the the notion of, uh, planned expenditure of effort on a particular aspect of yourself doesn't really show up for you.
0: No, I don't. I don't find that um, that's too. It's too much. It's too. It's too deep. Too heavy. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to yeah. be bogged down there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I see. Where do, you, where do you come in on this?
4: Uh, well, first, I was going to say a word that I thought of. Um, when Deb was talking about coasting, but she didn't necessarily like what that might imply, Um, the word I might use for her is, is steady. So it'd be like somebody, instead of somebody who's just coasting in a car, which would imply that they aren't using the brake or the gas pedal, that it's more steady in the sense of just maintaining a particular pace or just kind of maintaining that presence, in life and moving forward step by step rather than lots of speeding up and slowing down kind of thing mm.
1: um,
4: and you know you use the the illustration of this being spring and that kind of thing and while kind of like Mildred I don't necessarily like the words strengths and weaknesses because I think if we start to even though it may be recommended that we work on our weaknesses when we start to think of those or think of ourselves as having weaknesses then we start to think of ourselves as weak and it becomes this kind of mm-hmm. mentally perpetuating thing um, but instead what I would look at is uh, you, going back to that spring analogy um, f- for what you might call strengths I would say what are th- where or what are those areas of growth in me that are currently in process of growing and how do I cultivate them Mm -hmm. and for weaknesses I would just look at those are things that perhaps need tending to or pruning uh, that are areas of potential growth but haven't reached the stage of growth yet just like with spring we can see what plants are coming up where we just have to kind of cultivate those in order to help encourage them to continue growing and there are other things that may need tending to because they're not growing quite so well or they may need pruning. So I I tend to look at it all as just a spectrum of growth Mm
1: -hmm.
4: and it's more a matter of what needs cultivation because it's in the, the process of growth in this moment and what needs tending to or pruning because it's either not growing at this time so it just needs to kind of be let be or maybe it needs to be pruned because it's not necessarily going to support, or it doesn't look like it's healthy, and therefore doesn't need to continue to be a part of the, the "quote unquote" garden that is my life.
2: So, so all three of you have a have a perspective on this that is not, um, it's not strength or weakness. It's more. It's it's less noun and more verb. It's it seems like it's like um, the places that naturally draw your energy are the places where you allow your energy to flow. Is that about right?
0: Um, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty much yes i i for myself i I would agree that I don't spend a lot of mental thought or or deep. Uh, introspection on directing myself anywhere um, so so yeah I think that's pa- basically what you were what you were just describing um, it is and and I just go with it
1: mm.
0: and, and, and go ahead
3: yeah what, what, as I was listening to Deb speak when I was reflecting after listening to what you had to say my impetus for growth is being in the flow Mm. And if you say what is the flow? The flow is the place where I feel centered. I feel fulfilled. I feel connected with the universe. So that, in in terms of nourishing myself or any form of development, it is toward the flow mm. or in conjunction with the flow.
1: Right, right.
2: It's a, it's very interesting. And, and I see you talked to you kind of talked to this uh, about this uh, in the sense of what's ready, what's ready to grow, what's what's being. Uh, it was sort of what has its own momentum
4: well right because it's, it's being conscious and aware of what is growing and therefore where we perhaps want or need to put our energies at that time whether we're actively doing that or it's calling attention to itself saying this is where you need to put your attention because this is what is in growth or has the potential for growth at this time for you right uh, and I I, You know, and and for me, again, the words are really important because I think we can create this negative loop in our heads if we start Mm -hmm. using words like weakness and that kind of thing, because it starts to turn back around on how we're viewing ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if we can not ingrain those words, but find other ways to express it then we cannot get caught up in thinking that somewhere or somehow I'm weak, which is somehow, uh, you know, a problem or an inferiority or makes me less than uh, other people that I can, because we get into comparison, you know. So it's, it's more about that awareness of what is growing, what is in growth, which is calling my attention and is where I need to put my energy. And what isn't growing at this time just may not need my energy and focus right now. Hmm. Or maybe something I need to recognize has no um, healthy or beneficial purpose, and therefore I need to let it go rather than carrying it around, even if I think I might come back to it later.
2: Yeah, I think that coming back to it later is, is a very interesting notion. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we there have been some studies that have shown that uh, the uh, return on investment, so to speak, uh, when we focus on... Developing our areas of natural skill and, and natural gifts versus the areas where we're not so, uh, gifted, uh, is way higher. Like we get more out of it, of leaning into our strengths and our natural talents than we do trying to become the, the well-rounded person who has everything mastered or everything is, who is competent at everything. Uh, and I, you know, for a long time, I felt like there really was an obligation on my part to find the areas where i where I, you know traditionally would have called myself weak um areas where my i didn't have particular gifts or talents and exercise those things consciously to create a more complete whole person um in some abstract sense right that that somehow i was incomplete if i couldn't if i didn't have the discipline to uh, read legal ease or something like that, you know, like just things that were not fun for me or, or weren't easy for me to do. Um, and as I've gotten a little older and hopefully a little wiser, um, I started to feel like you know wholeness is, is a diff- is not that wholeness is not having everything having being competent at everything. Wholeness is is the song it's It's being in tune with the song that is who you are, and so the idea of um throwing myself at a particular area where where i I'm not as capable is not as appealing to me anymore, and you know sometimes I think you know i th- and I guess one of the things is that there's a challenge there when it comes to things that where where you have a need to be. To, to have a capability and you don't, you know, and and if you don't have the capability, then it becomes uncomfortable because, you know, there's something missing that needs to be, there's a, a role that needs to be played that you're not very good at playing. And so what do you do about that? Like if, if you're not good at something or you don't, it's not part of your life purpose or it, it's not ripe for growth, but it needs to be part of your life or it's asking to be part of your life and you just don't feel like drilling down on that what do you what do you guys do about that
3: um john it's mildred lynn speaking if it's a necessity if it's something that absolutely needs to be done for myself i do it to the best of my ability and let it go
1: mm.
3: because there's always Another way to do things so I would say to myself I'll do it to the best of my ability and I might be missing a portion of it here or there may be a solution that I didn't think of so I'm open to alternatives at the same time
0: easy on myself Mm. because you can only do what you can do
1: right right
0: yeah I I pretty much agree with Mildred's um, assessment of when there's no other choice and it's a matter of, you know, survival uh per se or something you do because that's what you need to do and what you can't do maybe hopefully someone near you can help with and can provide um that's why we don't live separate from each other we are really all you know connected and we're connected for a reason because no one individual has to be good at everything. And you need to allow people who are better, quote unquote, at things, certain things than you are or have expertise to do their jobs or to do what is natural for them. While you do the best that you can do with what you're, what you've got. And Mm -hmm. then you let it go.
1: Right. Right.
0: And
4: here I'm not, opposed to the word strength um, and and I think that it just like Deb was saying I think it takes just as much strength to recognize when you need help or assistance or guidance with something to then reach out to someone who has that strength uh, it, a lot of people will see that as a they, they think it's a sign of weakness in themselves if they can't do it or whatever mm. but but I think that it is a sign of strength and it's when you bring the the, the strengths of everyone together, that you create something stronger than what the individual parts could be on their own. So for me, it's that willingness to recognize what I'm not as strong in and reach out to someone who may be stronger in that, in order to receive that assistance or that guidance or that help. Um, Because I think it's also strength to recognize i don't have to know how to do everything and i can't do everything on my own and it's a strength to recognize that and to reach out
2: yeah yeah well thanks guys this brings to mind a conversation i had with a colleague of mine several years ago where he was had been unhappy in his career um because he was trying to run a small business and he had to do wear all the hats and he went to a coach career coach, and his career coach said, "Well, my recommendation is that you do less of what you don't like and more of what you like <laughs> and so he hired somebody to do the stuff that he didn't like, and he then he had all he freed up all this energy to go do the things that he really did like, and his business bloomed. so uh you know i I think there is a lot of wisdom here in aligning to your life purpose um leaning into your strengths and and feeling the vitality that comes with that and recognizing that you're not alone, right? That we do live in community and that there are other people who have those gifts that uh, if you can lean on them to deliver from their strengths, you'll have more life energy to deliver on your strengths. And I think that makes, you know, one and one makes three in that scenario. So... So thanks very much to my co-hosts for joining me in this round table. Um, We have a great show coming up and uh, I hope you'll stay tuned. Um, We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Thanks guys.
0: You're welcome. Have a good day. Have a good show, John. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun and lightning and heart centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light.
2: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. It was the March full moon. I'd been drawn to Santa Cruz during the late afternoon. I spent the hours watching the surfers and the surf. It was powerful. It was up, churning, and beautiful as it carried the waves and the surfers to the shore. After a few hours, I attempted to leave. Several times, in fact. But fate, in the form of a a nap in the front seat of my car, a phone call from a friend, and a street that literally circled me around and dropped me back off at the cliffs, intervened. And then I saw the moon rise. I hadn't thought about it, nor anticipated seeing the full moon rise over the hills surrounding Santa Cruz and the view of its reflection on the water. I was spellbound. The beauty of the churning surf and the rugged cliffs under the rising golden moon was so powerful it brought tears to my eyes and stole my breath. Have I mentioned that I'm probably moving to Santa Cruz? Anyway. I was deeply embedded in the experience and spirit was very present and very willing to teach me. It was a magical night. One of the many experiences I'd had that night was a simple connection to discomfort. Because I hadn't planned on spending so much time there I was unprepared for the nighttime chill and had only my emergency light jacket in the car. It was getting cold but I didn't want to leave. I donned the jacket and began walking up and down the path along the cliffs. It was breathtaking. And as the night went on, it was getting colder. I was getting colder. But I didn't want to leave. So I had to make a choice
1: between comfort
2: and experience. I've related in past programs how last autumn I was enticed by the sea to wade in and swim as part of a powerful initiation and dance with the spirit of the phoenix. I'd learned some techniques to deal with being cold, and so this night I felt like I had a choice. It's interesting, though, how we often just simply turn away from discomfort. In the past I would have said, "Ah, Too cold. I wish I'd brought another jacket. Oh well. Or, if I'd been bold, I would have found a clothing store and bought a sweatshirt or a fleece. But the idea of simply braving the discomfort, being present to it, seems an odd notion. And yet, that's what I chose to do, knowing that I would recover, knowing that I wouldn't die, for heaven's sakes, but that I would experience discomfort. Which led me to a question, more than one, actually. What is it about discomfort? What is it, actually, that we're resisting? That we are, in effect, rejecting. And what is the nature of that resistance? I had to tap into these questions and explore some answers if I was going to stay outside under that beautiful moon. My first step in this process was to feel deeply into what was happening. Staying present to what is has become a kind of mantra for me. So instead of shirking and shrinking and sidestepping what I was feeling, instead of trying to distance myself from what I was feeling, really? I said yes to it. As I did that, I had to get intimate with that discomfort. Where was I cold? What was my body actually telling me if I got serious about listening? Could I isolate the discomfort? Generally, when I feel cold, my whole body goes into a kind of rejection and panic. I don't want to be there. So, a whole bunch of anxiety arises, and my body gets twitchy and shuddery, but not really shivery. I think it's it's not the cold that actually distresses me so much, it's the anxiety about being cold that distresses me, long before the being cold part actually causes me a serious problem. Ignoring being cold isn't the right answer. I tried that at first. Just relax, John. You're not going to die. Let your body temperature drop a little. What's the big deal? Well, what happened was pretty simple. A whole bunch of my body started to shiver. That was pretty debilitating to my experience of the evening. I couldn't enjoy what I was seeing because my body was in an all-consuming involuntary process that was quite distracting. And I wasn't really getting a lot much warmer from the process either. So that didn't work out too well. After about five minutes of this technique... I realized I needed something else. Apparently, shivering is not exactly the most efficient process. Though, it is one that can work involuntarily, so it's kind of handy if you're unconscious or asleep, but maybe not your first choice. So, I tried to warm myself up with some activity. Isometric exercises. Flexing and holding my muscles in my legs, arms, and torso. What I discovered was that I could actually warm myself up this way but it required so much of my attention that I really couldn't enjoy the evening doing this, either. So this was a a voluntary process that was quite distracting. But at least I'd gotten myself warm again. So, having recovered to a kind of non-shivery state, I again relaxed and allowed. The sense of being cold readily returned. This time, though, I didn't ignore it. I actually embraced the emergence of the feeling I deliberately methodically released the anxiety but held on to the actual discomfort it ceased to be a mental process and became a very tactile feeling experience what I discovered was that underneath the anxiety was a kind of gross almost nauseous feeling that was generally spread around my back down to my kidneys and forward into my solar plexus That's a big area and easy to experience anxiety around. But if I focused on it more intently, I found that the center of this discomfort was actually in the center of my back, between and near the top of my shoulder blades. Why was that? I didn't know, but it was new information. I could actually really invest myself in understanding this discomfort because I had isolated it. So I thought, I'm going to switch my thinking. I'm not going to say I'm cold. I'm going to say I'm experiencing discomfort in the middle of my back between my shoulder blades. That made a world of difference because now I could investigate what I could do to support this part of my body, to help it out in the presence of this discomfort. This was not a subtle difference, not at, not at all. This was a major shift. So I started to massage that part of my body, shiatsu style, by moving my arms and shoulders and twisting my torso and breathing deeply into my ribs to expand and stretch and exercise all the muscles in my back. I might have looked a little funny doing twists and flapping my arms and elbows out there on the promenade, but I, I did it anyway. And I started to walk briskly, swinging my arms with intention, always focused on what each action was doing to support the spot in my back that was experiencing the discomfort. In short, I was leaning into my strengths to support a weakness. I was leveraging what had lots of capacity to support a delicate, one might say, wounded as a general statement, although it isn't wounded in any way that I'm conscious of, a a, a delicate and wounded part of myself. It was clearly a part that needed love and support. So that's what I did. I loved, supported, and served that spot in the center of my back. The result was nothing short of astonishing. Within five minutes, I no longer felt that discomfort. I'm not sure that I was warm. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I was still cold in the thermal sense and in the tactile sense. It still felt cold out but I was no longer uncomfortable. The cold had ceased to be a spot in my back and had spread out to a light and bracing experience that included my whole body in a balanced and sustainable way. I noticed that my breathing and muscle tone had changed. It was more fluid and full and, what, directed, intentional somehow. It was directed at managing coldness and supporting my upper back. But it didn't interfere with my ability to attend to the beauty all around me. In fact, I think it enhanced it because now I could actually feel the cold as an aspect, a precious, intimate aspect of the experience instead of wishing it wasn't so. I have to say, I think it's my experience with yoga and in particular the way my teacher, Zlata Dolgova, has taught it to me, that played a significant role in my mastering this situation. I've come to understand that everything, it seems, literally everything, is accessible through the breath. That's a story for another time, though. That night, under the full moon, by the sea, I established a new kind of rapport with discomfort. From now on, I'm not going to run away from discomfort. I'm not going to try to shut it down or change my environment immediately. And I'm not just going to endure it either or ignore it. Perhaps most significantly, I'm not going to allow an anxiety over experiencing discomfort to take control over my conscious presence. Now, I'm going to seek a kind of very personal deep intimacy with that discomfort. To isolate it, not as a thing to be rid of, but as a place that warrants attention and care. And I'm going to allow that spot to be the messenger, the harbinger, and the supplicant. The one who needs my compassionate care and attention. And I will bring whatever resources I have within myself to bear on the challenge and see if I can spread the load, rebalance how all the different parts of myself are experiencing the situation and allow the circumstances to be part of my environment without having to acquiesce to suffering over it. I'll let you know how it goes. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Convergence with host John Carasella on Firefly Willows LIVE. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show.
2: Welcome back. This is Convergence and I'm your host John Carasella and with me for today's spirited conversation is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, Sonia Amrita Bibelos. and Sonia has been on the show before, uh, back as as long ago as September of 2012, and actually the very first pilot program, the very first spirited conversation Sonia and I did in 2011, and we did it with video, and that was that was quite something. So you know what you know what I haven't done is I haven't taken that audio track and brought it. uh, I I can just peel the audio track off of that and and add it to the collection because it was a really great conversation. Anyway, um, Sonia has led quite a remarkable and eclectic life. Raised in a Russian and Greek Orthodox Christian household, spirituality and mysticism were woven into her daily life, and she was born with a natural, intuitive, and healing capability that began to increase in her teenage years. Sonia worked as a professional artist, actor, and storyteller as her healing and spiritual journey continued to deepen. In 2002, she met the Buddhist and Advaita Vedanta Mm -hmm. uh, spiritual teacher, uh, Yashanti, who is also a really cool guy, uh, and ultimately worked as his program director at Open Gate Sangha. Though she's studied many different religions and healing modalities, much of what she's learned has come from experimentation and discovery which i love i love that uh and it's both a scientific and creative process it lives and breathes and is always evolving and sonya offers it with a sense of love gratitude and humility mm. sonya welcome to the show thank you john i i as i said i love having you uh, on the show i love you as a person you're amazing mm. um the healing wisdom that you bring the capacity to to help people move into a place of healing and growth is quite remarkable. Mm. And this just happened. Well, how did you, you get to this amazing place? How did you get to be this amazing person? <laughs>
5: Thank you. You're so sweet, John. Thank you. That's really funny. Um, you know, first and foremost was healing myself. Right?
1: Ah, right. I
5: had a lot of early childhood trauma, mm-hmm. uh, sexual abuse and psychological violence and blah, blah, blah at home. And so... Uh, When I was a teenager, late in my teen years, after having an awakening that I think we talked about in our our last (laughs) interview, uh, I really had to heal. I had to heal and I pulled out all the stops. I used every gift I had, gifts I didn't know I had, to help myself heal. And back then I had two other healers I was working with um, who kind of showed me and helped me to understand these capacities that I had and they helped me to heal, and they helped me to use my own gifts on myself. And then people started coming to me because they saw that I was getting results in my healing journey that they weren't getting with their own therapist or whatever whoever they were working with at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the work kind of naturally began to evolve from there.
2: So w- one thing that I didn't know was that you worked as an actor and storyteller. Yeah. What was that like?
5: It was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I did my first play when i was 14 in high school and then i went to school for it at northwestern oh oh is that
2: that's what you studied
5: that's what i studied at northwestern uh-huh. university and it's a really competitive program at mm. northwestern very intense and i loved it and uh there's a lot of wonderful capacities that i i got to use and express as an actor and writer and director we had to do all those things
1: yeah
5: um and ultimately my spiritual path in the beginning made it hard for me when I started really taking off in my spiritual path um because there was something so ego about acting and so not ego about my awakening journey uh-huh. but I had to come full circle around ultimately in the end to see that you can do anything without ego you can be an actor without ego right, but right, I stopped yeah. acting at first because I didn't know how to reconcile the two And since then, now I understand it's totally possible to reconcile. I think that's
2: actually a really cool uh, observation and opportunity uh, for for aspiring actors to learn how to really to navigate their career without falling into the ego trap. Because it's such an ego sort of, you know, by default, it's kind of an ego boosting environment.
5: And it's both sides of the ego that get triggered. It's oh, the it's the self-consciousness. I mean, communities of actors are notoriously insecure.
1: That's and true, also,
5: right, right. you know, it can inflate you mm-hmm. in a way that's mm-hmm. not real. And so I had to work. I mean, in in a way, it was good for my spiritual path because I had to work to find a center, you know, uh, uh, for myself that wasn't totally inflating or totally dismissing. Mm-hmm.
2: So. Okay. And one of the things... In doing my prep for the, for this morning, um, I was looking at your website, which, by the way, is fantastic illuminatedwisdom.com. And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But oh, one of the things that uh, I read on there is you, you write, Awakening is a natural process. Awakening is also a challenging process that can require commitment and determination. At a certain point in my adult life, I realized awakening was all I really wanted, it was all I needed. That desire and commitment invited in both grace, which created effortless revealing of the divine, and the fire of change, which challenged me to surrender ideas, beliefs, and habits that I didn't even know a human could surrender. It was glorious and horribly awkward and downright painful. <laughs> Sometimes it was glorious, painful, and awkward and delightful all at the same time. And and I really think about, you know, one of the things that I wanted to, wanted to talk about today was what is the what's the difference between awakened be, be, the before and after of awakening? Mm-hmm. And and how do you know you're you're how do you know it's happening?
5: <laughs> Those are great questions. Those are awesome questions. You you went straight for the fifty thousand dollar question.
1: <laughs> well,
2: you know, this is an expensive show. <laughs>
1: that's right, that's right. <laughs> Only the
2: best talent.
5: <laughs> so sweet. It's
2: great. Um
5: so much to say about that.
2: Uh, we'll start wherever you want. Yeah. I really want to. I, I want to talk about your, your new work, uh, the becoming a new human stuff that you're launching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, why would we want to become a new human?
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, it's
2: right. This painful process, this um, fire of change, surrendering ideas and habits that you know a human could surrender. And that sounds like there better be a payoff.
5: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. There better be a payoff. And, you know, it's funny because my teacher, Ajashanti used to always say that um, you can't do this because you're expecting a payoff.
1: Uh-huh. Right. Right.
5: So there's a trick in there. Um, but there is a lot of beauty and grace uh, through awakening and after awakening. But it's usually not what we expect it to be. Mm-hmm. I think that we ha- I know I did have a lot of ideas about what awakening is or spirituality is. And um, most of them turned out to be wrong. Or at least skewed, you know, at least a little off there. Um, So for me, I think uh, awakening is so different in the experience of every human. I mean, one thing that I enjoy about the work that I do, because I do a lot of private sessions, is I get to see live and close up hundreds of varieties Mm -hmm. of what awakening looks like in the world. And I got to see that somewhat too working for Adya um, in his Sangha. He's he a huge community. Um, but there are certain things that are consistent. And so I'll speak to those. Mm-hmm. The way everybody experiences these consistent things changes dramatically. Um One is an opening to everything, to a sense of oneness to a sense of the self not being an individual self, that we're interconnected in this intense, primal, and infinite way. Another quality is love. Most awakenings at some point, even if it doesn't happen initially, there's a heart opening, there's a heart awakening. And I call it the infinite love, because when our hearts expand also beyond our own personal hearts to the infinite heart that is everything and everywhere, that's one of the things in traditional Buddhism and Advaita, the other piece that um, many people experience awakening is emptiness, is the void, that we go so far into the oneness, so far into love that on the other side of that is, it's just not, is nothingness, but there's something active and alive in the nothingness. And there's a spiritual teacher who calls it the dazzling dark. And that's probably one of my personal favorite phrases mm-hmm. to describe the void um, because it feels like that. It's alive and amazing. And there is, uh, I know for myself, when I experience the dazzling dark, I'm not in the dazzling dark. There's no me in the dazzling dark. Mm -hmm. So one of the other qualities of awakening is that we can leave behind a reference of self. It's like changing from the universe revolving around the earth to the earth revolving around the sun, but no earth. Like there's no me. There's no Mm -hmm. center of me. Mm -hmm. And yet, even out of that, we come back to this daily life and we see that life is moving something. It's this being. It happens to be called Sanya. And this being called Sanya is doing these things in the world. So these are some of the qualities of
1: awakening.
2: So there's a a heart opening. Mm -hmm. There's an expansiveness of the self. or uh, It's both an expansiveness of the self into the oneness of everything, and a dissolution of the self into. Are you an observer? Like when you're in the dazzling dark.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What is that experience? What? What? Not who is experiencing it, but yeah. What? What? What do you? What do you come back with?
5: That's such a great question. It's tricky to describe. Um, I, if I really ground into my own experience of it, I can tell you that when I'm fully in the dazzling dark, there's the lightest possible experience of observation mm-hmm. without a root into some individual human experience. It's it's tricky to describe.
1: Yeah, yeah.
5: And... um I I honestly, I know, I'm very blessed. I get to know many people who've had this kind of experience. I don't know that absolutely everybody has to have it in their awakening experiences. I don't know. And I'll give you an example. Um, St. Francis. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about St. Francis because when I was in Assisi and I was just being with his energy, I thought, wow, if there's a Christian saint who is awake, it's St. Francis. Yeah, so amazing. Uh I have no idea if Saint Francis experienced the dazzling dark. Maybe he did. We don't know. You know, maybe somewhere in his writings that I haven't read. I don't know. So, but it is, uh, it is an opportunity that we have if we want to take it, and if we're called to have that experience to go into the dazzling dark.
2: Mm. And and um, how does it change your perception of and and your operation of? The, the creation, the element of creation that is, that is called Sonya, mm. having experienced it, what, what does it do for you?
5: That's a great question. So many different things. I mean, one is that I know I, I feel the miracle of life even more.
2: Like,
1: mm.
5: it's even more of a joyous surprise. I think, and I remember Adya talking about this years ago before I realized it for myself, and I sort of got it, and I sort of didn't, and then when I started seeing it for myself, I was like, whoa, this is amazing, because when you come out of the dazzling dark, why come into form? Why does anything develop into a form? And it's love. It's this amazing
2: love. love You know, I I think one of the things that I, I consistently come back to when I, you know, and I'm, I'm like this guy who probes all, lots of questions and loves the physics and the metaphysics and the, you know, all, incessantly curious. And every time, it seems like every time I get to a place where the nut has become extremely difficult to crack, right? Trust me. Like, okay, what is this? what is really happening here? Uh, the answer always comes back to. Oh, I know. I see what's happening here. Love is happening here. <laughs> it always comes back to that. It's like fabric is made of love. The nouns are love. The verbs are love. It's all love. It's like the, the, all the dynamics is just this great, this, this dance of of love. And it's so, it's such a simple answer. Why don't? Why is it hard for us to to viscerally and and consciously experience that?
5: Mm, that's a great question. Mostly it's our minds. I think it's two things. I think it's that we default to our minds and we have stories about needing to defend ourselves and not open to love. We have all these things going on mm, between yeah. about in our minds about our hearts. I think the other thing is that we associate love for a time in our journeys, personal emotion. Mm -hmm. So in a funny way, I I could describe it as we have to drop deeper into the heart, to that place beyond emotion, to that place that is such love. And that can seem scary. It's actually easier. Life gets better when we drop (laughs) deeper into the heart, as you know. But uh, at first, it feels scary to people.
2: I had a very interesting... uh experience just Saturday night actually I was, I was, no Sunday night I was down in Santa Cruz uh, and it was full moon and the waves were pounding the surf and the, the shore was just gorgeous and, uh, oh,
1: fabulous,
2: fabulous. And, and I I don't know why I got triggered this way but uh, I had this, this saying that I got in a deep meditation that sort of for me was a summary of Jesus in five words right uh, and, and the, the the five words were love yourself, serve without ego, right? And the idea was, you know, give yourself all this, give yourself the love you need to allow yourself to blossom and then bring your bring your gifts out into the world and offer them without feeling, you know, the sense of somebody has to accept them, right? Uh, so that's the serve without ego part. And, and then on Saturday, Sunday night, I got this corollary to that, which was the shadow side message, which was... Um, serve the greater good. Don't be defensive about your wounds. Welcome invitations to intimacy, which is really all about dropping your defense. It's not uh, dropping your, your predilection to feel attacked, right? In the absence of knowing what to do when you're like in pain or suffering, figure out how you can serve the greater good and allow yourself to be, have wounds, but don't be defensive about it.
1: Yeah.
2: And the idea that we don't have to be, we, we need to take care of ourselves, but we don't have to be defensive about that. And, mm-hmm. and so we can be vulnerable. Is it is it about being vulnerable? When you drop deeper into love, right? Mm-hmm. You still have, you still have your wounds.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: I think it's, it can require a vulnerability or a willingness to be vulnerable at first. Yeah. But it also requires taking one step away from our wounds and realizing that they're not personal. They're just wounds. They're just hurts. That's all they really are. They're not about us. They're not. They don't make us who we are. So then we start to hold our wounds more lightly. It's like we're not gripping on to them,
1: right? right? Because we're not
5: identified with them anymore. And then we can just allow them to show us how they need to be healed and actually dropping into love Accelerates their healing.
2: Okay, I want to want to yeah, that's that, that, I want to talk about that. The, the because it is it really is the holding That's what I'm. That's what the, was the message was that we, you know holding onto your wounds so tightly. This this like you, you're defensive about them some in some way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, why why are we defensive about our wounds? Why do we hold on to them so tightly? The the idea that you 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 said that we identify with them, but what does that what does that mean? Mm-hmm.
5: It means that we think that we are our wounds in some way. Like, like there's some confusion that happens in our minds that thinks, I am, I am one who was hurt. I am the one who was, in my case, raped. I am the one who was, but I'm not. Rape happened. That's not who I am. Abuse happened. That's not who I am. Right? But there's this little confusion that we become identified as. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of AA, so, so no criticism, but, but there's an identification of I'm an alcoholic and there's a lot of wounds around being an alcoholic. If you just hold that identity just even a few inches away from your own self and say, alcoholism happened, that's not who I am, right? Mm-hmm. It gives you a little bit more space.
2: Yes, does it does, get, does give you more space. And it's an interesting... It's an interesting kind of space that it gives you. It gives you, you know, I, I, I think a lot about and because I because this is how it feels to me internally. I I think a lot about the notion of permeability, mm-hmm. right? That things aren't as dense as we think they are, and so they're not as weighty as we think they are. They don't have the same mass, and this 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 uh, this process of recognizing the permeability of all of the things that I identify with as material uh, and as as significant and as weighty, uh, they're not. They're, the potential exists for them to be much lighter, much less burdensome, because they don't have the weight that I thought they had. But how do we get to the place where we th- experience them as having weight and because I'm, cause I'm really, I actually would like to recreate this process for you know, and this is probably a big part of what you do is like unweighting, demassing the things that are burdens in our lives, and then because then we don't then they're, then they stop being burdens, they start being interesting things to
1: observe.
5: That's a great description, and I actually love that you talk about it in terms of weight and mass. I think that's a hundred percent right. And our perception makes it so. That's the kick in the pan,
2: right? <laughs> like, is, is really is that it? That like our perception makes it so.
5: Our perception makes it so. And sometimes it's about distance. Sometimes it's about we're so close into a thing that right. it's all we see. Right. And that gives it weight because that's where all of our attention is going.
2: Oh, because our attention, our our perception, is amplified by our intention. Exactly. And our attention.
5: And imagine, I mean, we're really powerful beings. So when we put a hundred percent of our focus and attention on a problem or something that's weighty or wow, that's a lot of energy.
2: Are we, are we really powerful beings?
5: Yes. Not the way we think we are. It's not the ownership of the ego, right? The ego isn't what's powerful, right? But life is incredibly powerful and can do anything and everything through
2: Anything in life, and we're just part of life. But well, wait, isn't the ego is really powerful? The, because because it is this thing that it is this. I have this image in my mind right now of this of this really intense uh, lens, focusable lens. That is the ego. The ego takes takes all of the inputs, all of the uh, energies and vibrations of our lives, and can just turn them like a like a giant lens can focus them down onto some little thing, and bring all of that power to bear on the little flower that's trying to grow in the desert, and can cook it in a second, or, or something like that. I, I, you know,
5: I do know what you're <laughs> saying, and I actually love that you're clarifying this because it is a really important clarification, because. It's life that's powerful and life will be powerful through whatever filter through whatever means right right and if we think that it's the ego itself that's powerful that's what gets us confused and Mm -hmm. what keeps us locked in the ego does that make sense Okay. okay okay so then if we just understand that life is powerful sometimes the way I talk about this is that the universe is always saying yes so if we want if the ego says I want to believe that I am a wounded person, then the universe is going to say, "Yes, okay. <laughs> yes, you are." And then all that energy and power of life is going to go to that. If you want to step out of that and you say, "I'm not a wounded person, I'm just a being of life and wounds happen." Universe is going to say, "Yes." And then all the energy goes to that. Does that make
2: sense? It's it's incredible. It's it's not credible to the to the egoic self that believes it has uh, but once you once you loosen that grip a tiny bit, you realize there's more room to loosen that grip more and more and more and more and more All right and so the ego can is this is how the ego falls away is just you because you relax
5: <laughs> that's a great way to talk about it. It, yeah, it's really true. And I actually saw a post on Facebook by a friend of mine who said, I'm so tired of spiritual teachers telling me to relax. But really, it's it's such a nice component of the ego surrendering process. Just relax and you'll see so much more. And,
2: and, and the places where we choose not to relax are the places where we have wounds where, that we either know consciously we have them there or... They're, we don't we don't realize that they're wounds. Is that a fair statement?
5: I think that's a very fair statement. And so there was a time in my spiritual life when I just made a practice of um, thinking of things instead of a closed fist as an open palm. Mm-hmm. So anything I started to feel myself tighten up around inside of myself, I would just use this practice. I'm going to open my hand. I'm just going to hold it in an open palm. Yeah. And inevitably... I would see things about whatever it was that, that I've been we're holding, holding up to. Yes, yes, exactly. yes,
2: yes. This is one of the things that happened to me uh, on Sunday when I was walking in Santa Cruz. I was walking along and it was a beautiful night. I just, like, But I was cold because I had got, gone there uh, during the day and the sun was out and I was wearing a short sleeve shirt and I only had a light jacket in the car and I'm, and I'm walking and I did not want to give up. I did not want to give up because it was so
3: beautiful. <laughs> Out on the moon, the
2: surf. And, uh, and, and I was like, but I was cold. And I said to myself, okay, I'm experiencing cold right now. I'm not going to die. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to die. So what is it that I'm experiencing? And how can I accommodate that? knowing full well that I'm not going to die. So there's going to be some discomfort. What actually is the nature of this discomfort? This is the going from the closed fist to the open hand, right? Okay, so, okay, um, discomfort. Let's open that hand up and nurture the part of myself that is experiencing discomfort with the parts of myself that have capacity to serve that, right? It's just like, Okay, well, if I'm feeling discomfort in the middle of my back because I'm cold, what can I do to comfort the middle of my back? Not, I didn't, I didn't focus on I need to be warm because yeah. I knew that wasn't really the issue. The issue wasn't that I was so cold that I was going to die or I was going to damage myself. The issue was that I was my, that that the cold was causing me discomfort in the middle of my back. And then I just started to love the middle of my back, and within like. A hundred yards, I was fine mm. that 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 grip relaxed, the discomfort just became part of the great orchestra of life mm. and a new new melodies, new counterpoints and harmonies appeared and I was fine
5: It's such a great story, well done, and mm. I want to point All out thank you <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out two really important themes in this that you didn't explicitly state. And one is that we have such a default habit of contracting.
1: Yeah, yeah.
5: That we don't even know we're doing it. Yes. And there's, I mean, we can have so much compassion for it because it's innocent. It's an innocent movement to just contract it first. Mm -hmm. But the opportunity as you took, which you took is, See that that default habit's happening and choose a different way.
2: Right, because it's, it, it's not required for your survival.
5: Exactly. It's really not. And that capacity to defend and do all of that, yes, it's useful, but only in very few contexts, right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to really I physically survive. That,
2: yes, I, is, and I, I was going to ask you, um, is that true, uh, or is, is the statement that the necessity to contract the necessity to contract is only appropriate, is only compelled by existentialist threats, real like life or death, fight or flight.
5: And I would say that probably that's true and even then the way the way you would contract and get amped by a threat, say you're being attacked by a mountain lion. Right. When you are are personally identified and are afraid for self in -hmm. some way, that's going to be a different reaction than if you are coming from a place where you know that everything is one. And the kick is that you might end up doing the same things. You, you're still going to jump up and down. You're still going to shout. You're still going to try to scare the lion away, right? right you're right. still going to have adrenaline <laughs> running in your body. Right, right. But the difference is, when you're done, if you know that everything's one, you're just going to say, wow, that was kind of interesting." Right, And right, it's right. going to flow right out of you. Right, it's just going to flow right, right through you. This is right? this
2: permeability thing that yes, you know, like it's just you don't have to. It doesn't have to stick to you as a. It's almost like you don't have to get wounded, right? Is it is it possible? that as you go into this process of, of greater and greater communion with oneness in, this, in the awakening process, that you, you just it's harder for you to get wounded?
5: Absolutely. And even when there's physical damage done or something happens, mm-hmm. because it doesn't... Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt myself and say this was one of the other themes that was so important about your story, is that you had no resistance. You had resistance at first, right? Right, right? And then you surrendered the resistance right. to being cold. Right. So surrendering resistance is huge, huge, huge. And yeah. so when you're getting hurt and you have no resistance to getting hurt, it can't imprint itself in your body mind with the same kind of weight as it does when you are resisting it, and you're fighting it because you actually make it more real when you're resisting it and fighting it.
2: Right. It's like, it's like, um. Uh... I guess it's like what, uh, what pain is inevitable, suffering is optional.
5: Exactly
2: right. Right, and it's the resistance that creates the suffering. It's the resistance that imprints the trauma, that then you have to somehow unwind. Exactly. And so, what do we advise people to to so that they don't so that they don't have that happen? I guess it's just the resist the whole notion of understanding your where your resistance is in practice. Releasing resistance in areas where, like, when you know you're not going to (laughs) die. That's right.
5: right. I think that it's that simple. I think another thing is also acceptance. And this is where people get confused. I hear this so often that we have some sort of cultural thing. I don't know if other cultures are like this, that acceptance means giving up. Acceptance means becoming a victim to something.
2: Yeah, yeah, it it means allowing someone else to dominate you or some circumstance to dominate you.
5: Exactly. And that's definitely not what I mean when I say acceptance. When I say acceptance, I'm saying if we just really receive and accept what is here in front of us, then our innate intelligence and wisdom knows how to show up to deal with it and meet it. That's a very different thing. And when you accept what is, again, the resistance can't be there. In the same way, because you're just accepting it.
2: Because, And and interestingly enough, what's the alternative? If it is what is, and you choose not to accept what is, it's a delusion.
5: Exactly. Exactly, but most people want to choose the delusion rather than just accepting what is. Well, I think
2: people want to choose the delusion because they think they're doing something else. Right. They think they're shifting something by not accepting what is
5: that's exactly my experience as well
2: and why why isn't that true why isn't it true that that i that's not acceptable you know my statement that's not acceptable uh isn't a healthy thing for me to
1: say
5: it's tricky to take exactly that statement because i think you could use that statement in communication with someone to convey like a line's been crossed and I'm not going to engage with this anymore, right? Right, So I I want to acknowledge healthy boundaries. (laughs) No, yeah, right. And and
2: I think this is the subtle terrain that we get confused in. So if you can illuminate, please. Uh, You can bring some illuminated wisdom to this. That would be wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Branding branding opportunity. (laughs) That's
5: awesome. Um, So, oh gosh, so many things. So the difference is that When you truly, 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 truly accept, you're just seeing what is. There's an innocent confusion that says, if I try to make this something else than other than what it is, that will be the way to fix it. It's an innocent confusion, but it's a confusion. Mm -hmm. So it's like dropping down into the heart to get more love. Like there are other ways we'll try to get more love rather than dropping down into the heart. But if you just drop down in the heart, you'll have infinite amounts of love. Forever and ever. So if you drop down into acceptance, if you drop down into what is, you're not going to fight with life. And you'll actually have more capacity to show up and deal with whatever's coming at you if you have no argument, no resistance, and you're not trying to fix it by making it something other than what it is.
2: But changing it isn't
1: wrong.
5: Correct. So it's not about being passive. Right.
1: right. That, let's, let's talk a little bit more thing. about
2: this. We gotta we gotta get into this, okay? Because people, because I know it's it's really hard. to Like you know, one of the things that that we hear is that the caste system in in uh, in India was an ex, an example of exactly the way these things go awry, where accepting what you your circumstances um, leads to this this um, stagnation of spirit. Because right. social structures impose and 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 stifle, right. so we don't want to we don't want to do that. Right? That's right. So what, what is it we're doing when we're accepting but not accepting?
5: We're accepting, but then we're inquiring. What? How does this want to be met? What does life want to do? What's the truth here? How am I called to respond?
1: Ah, that's
5: a completely different
2: thing. Right. So. Accepting is not the same as not responding.
5: Exactly. There's aliveness. There's something active in the present moment. See, this is, and this is the deception of the ego because the ego can say, if I accept this, then I just fall asleep and I don't do anything with it. Right. That's laziness. Really, in a certain way. Yeah.
2: Right? mm -hmm. It's abdication. It's
5: abdication, right? Surrender. It's It can be defeat. The ego has a lot of different shadows that can stir up, Mm -hmm. right, on the other side of this. Right. But actually, so, and this is one of the wonderful things about the teaching of somebody like Eckhart Tolle, is like, be present. When you're accepting and you're really, really present with a capital P, what do do you want to do? How are you moved to respond? And sometimes that's going to be saying no. Sometimes that's going to be, this, this line was crossed, I will not engage anymore, I will not do this anymore, or I'm leaving, right. or whatever it has right. to be. Right. I mean, there's a reason the Hindus showed us deities that are violent. There's a reason Hindus showed us deities that are tough and strong, because that's part of life, too. It's not a spiritual ideal to just be passive and loving. That's that's not a true true
2: thing. It's not complete for the operation of this of a body in this reality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're having such a great time, but the clock is really flying by. So
1: <laughs> let's take
2: a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the the work that you're about to share uh, with the world, or you're going to be in the process of sharing um, uh, on being becoming a new human. Okay. So. Uh, Short
1: break, we'll be right back.
0: A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhisi.net. Or email him at hic at com.
2: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me today is Sonia Amrita Bibilos, caretaker and curator of illuminatedwisdom.com and introducer of a really cool program, a year-long program, um, called...
5: A Year to Become a New Human. A
2: Year to Become a New Human. Um, Okay, why do we need to become new humans?
5: Well, we don't have to, but if we're called to. uh, I remember many years ago, my teacher saying in a retreat that when we awaken and we fully, fully awaken, we become like a different species. And I I thought that was a neat idea. And I didn't understand what he meant until after a series of awakenings I had. I was sitting in meditation and I was like, I have no idea what it means to be human. Like, I've never really understood what it means to be in this life, in this body, uh, doing life things without an ego, right? And so there's a process of waking up and becoming a whole different human, having work and relationships and even a healing journey around past wounds that's completely different completely different way of navigating life, completely different way of engaging Mm -hmm. than what we commonly think. And what I've been learning as I work with so many people is that you don't have to be fully awake to start learning and living some of these principles Mm -hmm. of becoming a new human. Some people, because growth is uneven, right? It doesn't happen in a smooth line. Some people will need that kind of guidance for a new human lifestyle right now. In some area of their lives, and so I built this program. I built this year to become a new human with four different modules to focus on four different pieces to support people uh, to awaken and also to learn to live that awakened consciousness in their lives.
2: Okay, so it's both it's both um, helping to awaken and uh, guidebook for. Procedures and protocols for functioning as a new human.
5: Yes, exactly. That's a great way to say it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
2: Okay. So what are the, what are the modules?
5: The first one is expand awakening and that's runs throughout the whole year. It's a monthly program for 12 months and it is designed to offer you gateways and possibilities to know and remember your own awakened awareness that's already alive in you. Mm -hmm. And then the second module. We're starting to get into the specifics of life, and it's become a new human at work. And so how do we engage with work impersonally, letting our gifts just flow through us without an ego to filter it out? And we move from become a new human at work into liberate childhood wounds. And for me, liberate childhood wounds is about what I call the third stage of healing, The first stage is knowing that we have a wound that wants our our attention and some love. And the second phase is loving it, doing therapy, healing modalities, whatever. The third phase is an acceptance, like we just talked about, that's so deep that we're liberated out of any identity of being a wounded person. And we can have a whole other kind of loving experience in our inner environment, uh, and still accept that those events happened in our lives at the same time. That Liberate Childhood Wounds is a great course to do before the last one, which is Become a New Human in Relationship. Mm,
1: right, and uh,
5: right. it says on my website, and I say it a lot, that romantic partnership is probably the single most area where we get the most confused. And people, even people who are awake can get really confused in romantic partnership. So we're going to talk about that.
2: Okay, so uh, let's start from the back and work forward. Why, is it, why do we get confused in romantic relationships? What, what is it about that?
5: I think the gift of romantic partnership is that it exposes any last area in us that's holding back from the divine, that's holding back from our awakened consciousness. Yeah, yeah, right?
1: yeah, wow. Mm. It
5: exposes our default habits. It exposes those places where we're defending in some mm-hmm. way. And again, it's innocent confusion. Those protocols and that conditioning that's inside of us got built somewhere in childhood. We don't even know that it's there. So if we take the challenges in relationship as the opportunity that they are to clear these things out, it's awesome. But if we get stuck in the problems, if we get stuck in those old habits, then it can derail a relationship. Does that make sense?
2: Mm. Yeah. Is that where you found some of those things that you didn't know humans could surrender?
5: Romantic partnership, yes, but I actually found it in, it's why I have these modules, I found it in um, liberating my childhood wounds, I found it in my relationship to work and purpose and calling, so for sure, okay. I found it everywhere. All right, well, let's, yeah.
2: go, let's go back to the next step then, which is liberating childhood wounds.
5: Yeah.
2: Um, why, did you, why did you use the phrase liberating childhood wounds? What, is, what do you mean by
1: that?
5: There's a quality of freedom that I was trying to convey when I named the course that,
1: mm-hmm.
5: that I honestly didn't know was possible. I mean, I when I started healing from, you know, the abuse from my dad or the, you know, again, the rape or whatever, I just thought, I, I actually remember a friend saying to me, like, you can go to all the therapy you want and you can do all this great healing work, but you're always going to be stuck with it. You're always going to be stuck with your stuff, with your wounds. And I remember thinking, Something about that doesn't seem right to me, but I was, I don't know, I must have been 19 or 20, and and I didn't know any different. Mm -hmm. And then when I started waking up, and I remember, I might have told you the story already, John, that there was a particular moment in my awakening where I felt such infinite love and such infinite abundance. And there was this question in my head, was that infinite oneness, abundance, and love, was that there even in the moment that I was being raped? And I went all the way back into that moment of being raped and I realized, oh my God, whatever was being done in that moment, whatever that guy was doing, whatever happened to my body, that was just what was on the surface. What was underneath is this amazing inherent wholeness, this purity of life that never got scarred, never got marred in any way. And the love was always there. Even if the guy who was raping me couldn't touch it, couldn't feel it in that moment. But that wasn't the focus. The focus is something so much deeper and amazing. And that was the moment when I started to feel a freedom from my past that I I didn't know could happen. I didn't know it was
2: possible. Right, and I think this is such a scary thing. It is such a scary thing to invite that truth To go to the place of your deepest fear and deepest wound and say, "Okay, I'm gonna go here and allow this, allow the possibility that this isn't." What's the way? The way I want to say this because I've because I've actually been doing this myself. Go all the way into the deepest wound and the deepest fear and say, what if this is okay? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: What would it mean? What would I have to know about the world, about the universe, about the divine, about myself for this to be okay? For me to be okay and not have this be a wound, but have this be an understanding or something, something other than a wound, so that it doesn't have to be a wound,
1: yeah.
2: and there's a there's a deep fear and uncertainty about allowing that
1: mm-hmm.
2: because we cause, cause we want to hold on to our wound,
5: yeah, and I think there's an important clarification for me to make too, which is that everything I'm saying. It's true. Everything we're saying is true. And the people who abuse me are fully accountable for their actions. Right?
1: right. That doesn't Absolutely. make
5: what they're doing okay from one perspective. And I am okay. It's a it's a yes and. Right?
1: Yeah. Right. right.
5: They're fully accountable and responsible. They were wrong, inappropriate, all those things. And I'm okay. Right. And both are true. And I don't have to be not okay to fight the fight. Right. To make rape wrong or whatever right. it is. That no, we're, exactly,
2: you know. exactly. That's so. That's so powerful. Because what it says is that the universe will always affirm the life affirming path.
5: Yeah, well right.
2: said. It always gives in the direction of love. It always gives generously in the direction of love, and it means that that you. You know, there are things that that shouldn't happen, that that people, that are wrong in a sense, right? But that doesn't have to make you not okay.
5: That's right. And I realized that by continuing the story, I'm not okay, I was still allowing the abuse to happen and be perpetuated into my adulthood. Why do that to myself?
2: What does that mean? Okay, explain that a little bit.
5: What I meant was, yeah, thank you. What I meant was that if I know that I'm okay, they're not still hurting me. Right. 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 Otherwise, it's like somewhere in my being, if if I don't know that I'm okay, somewhere in my being, there's a loop going on that says, I'm hurt, I'm abused, I'm scared. I'm lonely. I'm shamed. I'm whatever. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever it is. the story is. Right. A lot of times in session, it's exactly those loops that we're going in to free up, because something is still caught in that loop, that experience, that movie.
2: And and what's caught is that you can't be okay.
5: Yes. Exactly. So the freedom from the loop is just knowing we are truly, truly, inherently whole, truly, deeply, fundamentally okay, no matter what's going on on the surface of life.
2: This is such an interesting technology to explore. I mean, it really is. It is. It's like I feel like I'm hanging out with a bunch of uh, Buddhist and Hindu scientists.
4: <laughs> you know, I, I, it's like,
2: yeah. No, we can we can tweak the loop, and we can um, unlock the you know, unlatch the gate, and then the life force can flow through again. Yeah, and it really feels like these are these are esoteric and intangible, but very tangible in another sense. Very tangible techniques that you can concretely apply to the intangible aspects of your of your beingness that can open open gates let yeah. things flow again that's right and this is what becoming a new human helps us do
5: ultimately all the gates get to be open and free
1: That's <laughs> 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 <Yes>, exactly right <laughs>
2: okay it's a lot more fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well okay so um so what about you know I left high tech
5: Yes. Yeah.
2: Because I, it wasn't working for me anymore. I mean, I, can can one be a new human and still be in high tech?
5: Sure, why not?
2: Uh, tell us how, because it's like uh, becoming a new human at work is very interesting. Most of us still um, are part of the economic system that you know that is the one that's mm, here. So, how do we? How, what is it like to be uh, a new human at work?
5: Oh, that's so great. And I have clients who are in tech and mm-hmm. uh, and they're living some really interesting lives, yeah, right? Yeah. So uh here's the thing is we get to show up to work, whatever it is that we're doing, again, without taking anything personally. So there's, well, I'm just going to use tech as the example since, you know, you brought it up because it's a good one. There's a lot of politics, a lot of crazy behavior in the tech industry, right? Especially in the big companies. And so you're going to get bruised. You're going to get wounded. You're going to be challenged. You're going to have all this stuff happening. So imagine doing that without taking it personally. Imagine going through all that saying, all right, this is what is now. How am I moved to show up and respond? And there's a really important key to this too, which is that if you're awakening, you get more access to your inner wisdom, right? You get more access to incredible amounts of insight of how to meet with situations. And one of the most fun conversations I get to have in session are people who come up with these crazy, amazing solutions for dealing with a difficult boss or a difficult project or whatever it is.
1: Right, right.
5: The other important component of becoming a new human at work is knowing that this life is moving through you and all those gifts and skills and talents and limitations that you have aren't personal to you either. And that gives you a kind of freedom to express them. So you're not holding yourself back. The ego either wants to exaggerate a gift or it wants to stop a gift. It wants to devalue it in some way. It can't just accept something and allow it to flow, allow it to move and be. And so when you're just allowing your gifts to move and be, you can actually be in greater service However, you're called to be in service, whatever right, that right, looks like, right. and maybe that's being the only conscious person in a conference room, uh, right? right? Uh, right, <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs>
5: whatever that looks like, maybe it's feeding the poor. I have no idea, but it just it can move naturally through you again, talking about open, flowing gates. Right,
2: right, right. and and you're you have the the potential to be uh, both more relaxed, lower stress hormones. Yeah, right and more of a, uh, the typical answer, the typical thing that I would fill in here is light, but I'm actually thinking something else. You can be more of a song. Mm-hmm. You can be more of the thing that, that people want to sing harmoniously with
1: mm-hmm.
2: when you're in, I mean, because that's what, you know, I think about that like being at work and as I, toward the end of my uh, high-tech career experience, I realized that I was bringing a gentler song, Mm
1: -hmm. a
2: a more organic song to all of the projects that I was part of.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And that people felt healthier as a result. They felt like, you know, sure there's stress, but this is not as toxic. Mm
5: -hmm. That's beautiful. I love that um, metaphor of song. It feels that way to me. Yeah. It, it does feel that way to me too. It feels like a song. I've written about it in the past as a song. Mm. And so I love mm. that you brought that into it. I want to point out about you as an example too, that you could have stayed in tech if that had been true for you, but that's not what was true for you, right? right? You didn't right. leave tech because tech is bad. You left tech because you had another calling moving through you so powerfully. Yeah.
1: No, that's right? right. Yeah.
5: And yeah. it's, Shown itself
2: and yeah, and I'm, and I'm cool way. with it. I'm totally cool with it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but so one of the questions that that um, might bear asking is um, when people go through this process, does their relationship to their career change pretty predictably?
5: Hmm. Usually, not necessarily predictably except there's certain things that are consistent. There's certain qualities like being more at peace with whatever's happening, responding with more wisdom, you know, those kinds of things are consistent. But it varies so much. I mean, so one of my friends, and this is the example I often give, one of my friends, after her awakening, she got deeper into the corporate world. She went and got an MBA and we laughed and laughed and laughed about it. Exactly. (laughs) pretty weird. And And I remember when she told me, that she was going to get an MBA and she, by the way, she didn't just get any MBA. She went to Wharton.
1: It's not like she went to some kind
5: of like environmental, sustainable MBA program. She went to Wharton and I remember she was saying to me like, I don't know why but this is clearly the path that life has in front of me and I just have to go with it. And she had no attachment at any step of the way and it was amazing. And of course it changed her life and she got an amazing job with an amazing platform and Blah 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 blah. That's great. But, you know,
2: yeah.
1: but She so just did it because it, it was true. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So, the work career energy that that we have is in the in the program that you that you lead people through. It is liberated in some way, and also aligned more in some way. Is that what
1: happened?
5: Liberated and aligned, and in a certain sense. Uh, what we're looking for is for um, every participant to become aware of that inner compass that's guiding them through the wisdom and awakened consciousness that's moving through them so that they can begin to feel and know what it is that they're called to do, right. that they're not right. making choices out of some idea, out of a should. They're not making choices by default. They're making really authentic, aligned choices, and that might mean staying exactly where you're at and doing what you have been doing for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It could mean changing course. It could mean a slight modification. It could mean anything. Right. But it is about getting to know what that deepest truth is for you.
2: And, uh, and then also because you, because you're going through all these changes, you also, I imagine, have a deeper capacity to embrace whatever it is that's being revealed. Exactly. So you. So it's not a scary. You know, it's not, it's not like, oh my God, I'm going to go through this program and my life is going to change and I'm going to be scared to death because all the because suddenly I'm going to need to change jobs. It's going to be yeah, like, right. uh, oh, I realize now that I'm being pulled in a certain direction and and the universe is actually helping me go there. Yeah. Right. So it's not a, It's not more stress.
5: No, it's not more stress. It's actually more curiosity. It's it's interesting. Life actually becomes a lot more, more interesting, interesting, as yeah. you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> as it turns out, I can validate that. <laughs> Life definitely becomes more interesting uh, in a very beautiful way, a very beautiful way. Yeah. Um, okay. And so then, uh, and we start on this journey by, with the expanded consciousness module. That's right. And anything that you want to share about that? Because, you know, that's that's really for everybody.
1: Yeah
5: and um, it's the it's the foundation for the whole year expand awakening so the other modules run concurrently with it and that was really important to me in fact when if if someone's called to sign up for the whole year i want to give them expand awakening module for free like it just takes the cost of that all the way out because it's so important for me mm-hmm. and every month every program is looking looking at the opportunity to awaken from a different perspective Giving a different gateway, mm. and I work a little differently for the people who are used to a dual Advaita Satsang or something like that. I like I like sacred ritual, as John knows, mm. you know. I like sacred ritual. I like to start with sacred ritual. I like to call in everybody's wisdom and awakened consciousness and divine guides. I like to talk and do guided meditation and sitting meditation because it's so important for me that every participant get the opportunity to drop in and hear their own inner teacher. Yeah. Because there is an inner teacher guiding them and leading them and so I want to support everybody to listen to that. Even more important in many ways than listening to me.
2: Right? You know when the student is ready the teacher appears um, and I found that there's, there's so many triggers for that teacher to appear, and in the end, the teacher seems to always be the inner teacher leading me to a place where I'm going to get the lessons. Yes, you know, and it's really it's really cool uh, that what's revealed without you know on the outside of us is a reflection of some compass, some navigational program within that brought me to that place.
1: Yes.
2: And it's so cool. And again, it feels like a technology that's operating inside me by my higher self is running this program. it's like, okay, <laughs> inject new course correction, X, right? Send him to Santa Cruz or, you know, send them to somewhere, right? Like get this, the message is ripe over there. He'll get it. He'll get it. If we put him in this situation, he'll get it.
5: <laughs> right? Exactly.
2: It's so cool. Fascinating stuff. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. Is there anything, any last thing you'd like to share in terms of wisdom, uh, thoughts about what we've been talking about?
5: Yeah, thank you. I would say that even for your listeners who aren't really called to awakening specifically, that the wisdom within them is still accessible and ready to be dropped into and heard and utilized in a sense, in a healthy sense to guide them through their lives wherever that journey might take them.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Awesome, and if folks want to get to know you or your work or sign up for the the new program, where do we send them?
5: Ah, thank you. They can go to illuminatedwisdom dot com forward slash new human for the whole become a new Human year, and I'll be giving a free teleseminar on May eighth that is about what does it mean to become a new human, and that'll be at six thirty and the information's on my website
2: awesome all right, Sonia uh, I know you know this, but I'm going to say it again. I love what you do. I love your work. I love you as a person. You're amazing. And I just want to thank you again for being on the show.
5: Thank you, John. You are delightful to be with. And it's so wonderful to get to play and dialogue together. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, And uh,
1: we'll be right back.
0: Yes, we've added to our lineup of lively, thought-provoking shows. But don't forget our original Sunday morning lineup at 1030 a.m., Join us for Healing Conversations with Mildred Lynn McDonald every first Sunday. Revolution with Heisey Ludmers every second Sunday. Convergence with John Carousella every third Sunday. And our popular on-air call-in show, the fourth Sunday of every month. We're excited. Give us a listen as we continue to create new and entertaining ways for you to shine your inner light. Join us at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E.
2: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. What am I doing here? I ask that question a lot. Sometimes I get reasonable, rational answers. And sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I usually find myself choosing to go on a hike. <laughs> that often brings me clarity, or at least relief. So it was back in February when I was right in the middle of my transition house sitting gig and found myself wondering what was the point of all this? Where was I? Was there, was there anything I was supposed to be learning or discovering? I went to one of my favorite power places here in the Santa Cruz mountains. I've been to this place before many times and received many gifts from spirit there. Back in 2009, just after I'd left high tech, As I was looking to reclaim my personal sovereignty, I went for a hike and was led by a hawk to a magnificent, pristine, ten-point, black-tailed deer buck skull. You can see a picture of it on my Facebook page. I call him the Sovereign. It was quite an amazing experience and a perfect gift for where I was in my life at that time. But that's another story. This time, I went to the same magical place, but entered by the back gate. I was frustrated and, what, maybe a little depressed, cranky, I guess, because I really hit the trails and the hills hard. I had a lot of pent-up energy and wasn't inclined to mosey along. So I went into trailblazer mode and left the groomed trails and started just walking where the wind moved me. Deeper and deeper into the woods, further and further down steep slopes that I, I knew I would have to recline. I didn't care. I knew that A, spirit would take care of me, and B, I was tough enough to manage whatever discomfort I was setting myself up for. I must have walked for a couple of hours down, then up, and then down again, deeper and deeper into the headwaters of Stevens Creek. The only thing I was being mindful of was the presence of poison oak. Other than that, I was just wandering, letting the contours of the land and the smell of the earth guide me. Occasionally, I'd be blocked. I'd be looking to head up to a ridgetop to see where I was, but the presence of sagebrush and coyote bush would create an impenetrable barrier. As you rise up higher, the woodsy vegetation gives way to this more arid thicket. It's, it's the bramble. I'm always amused by the way the game trails evolve from full-size deer trails to a, what I call a size 32. <laughs> I can get through by hunching over a bit. And then to a size 20. It's hands and knees for 10 yards at a stretch. Down to a size 16. Okay, stretch out and maybe you have to crawl, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. I hope finally down to a size nine. Size nine. Those are the trails rabbit takes when Coyote and Bobcat are on his tail. And there ain't no room for a human, no matter how petulant and frustrated and cranky he is. So I pursued my fair share of trails that led to rabbit escape routes and backtracked and meandered. Eventually it was time for me to turn my energies towards getting home. Mostly, it was uneventful, but there were occasional moments where my insistence on picking a particular route was confounded by the terrain's insistence that I not go that way. Sometimes in life, we want something so badly we're willing to push against tremendous resistance and push and push and push and get scratched and poked in the process and then, if we're not careful, poison-oaked in the process. I've done this enough to know when I'm getting something out of my pushing and when I've reached the point of diminishing returns. It's a size nine trail from here. It's not easy to, it's not easy to let go of the ego, surrender hard won progress, to admit you've gone down a path that's not getting you where you want to go. It's not easy. Not for me anyway. Maybe not for you either. Backing down, letting the truth of the situation really settle in, being truly honest with what is. Sometimes that's a humbling, disappointing, frustrating experience. Nobody likes to feel helplessly outmatched by circumstance, especially if it's circumstance of one's own making. So it helps to have a little outside perspective in cases like this. It's helpful to have spirit helpers who are looking over your shoulder saying, hey, John, Don't get all wrapped up in this. There is no wrong path. There's only the path you've walked, and the discoveries you make. There's no shame in exploring a path that leads you somewhere unexpected. Only if you make it so. And why on earth would you? So I heard that wise counsel on this trek, in particular on my way back, when I got frustrated that the terrain would not yield to my demand for passage. And I felt my frustration dissipate, more or less, into a state of humble acceptance and exploration. And faith, too. Trust that I'd be okay. Of course, that wasn't really ever in doubt. I might be uncomfortable, but so what? I wasn't going to die or be lost for days or anything. And trust, too, that whatever rerouting was required, I'd enjoy it. And it would, in the end, all be worthwhile. So I turned, headed back down a slope that I'd just climbed up, tantalizingly close to the ridge top, but unequivocally blocked. I realized that as I headed back down, I was actually in a process of expanding the trails. I noticed that some of these pathways I'd been on before and that this time I'd made further progress. It dawned on me that it wasn't just me benefiting from these trails that the deer had made. The process was also working in the reverse. Every time I walked a trail and pushed through a size 32 or bulked and hulked my way through a size 20, I was making it just a little easier for my animal kin to pass along these trails too. And so they and I were working together to extend the tended wild just a little further. That made the whole experience just a little sweeter, and somehow came with a golden dewdrop of hope. We don't have to know each other to help each other. We don't have to have a master plan with project managers and deadlines to make progress. We just have to love each other and the world we live in, intend it like it matters, experience it like it's a gift, and progress is made just by the nature of things. Well, I headed back down and into the cool of the shaded woods. Walking along in the deep shadow, I came to a place where a seasonal creek would have been, if not for our winter drought. And there was a deer antler, right there, at my feet. I said hello. Here's an odd thing. I've come across quite a few deer antlers in my walks. Very precious to me. I'm given to understand that intact antlers are hard to come by because other critters like to gnaw on them for their protein content and and their minerals. So every time I find one, I'm tickled and delighted in what I see as a little gift, a nod from deer spirit that I'm being watched over. But here's what's weird. I've only ever found right antlers, never left antlers. And here at my feet, was a lefty. Pretty cool. So I said thanks and picked it up to carry it with me and bring home for my altar. Well, it wasn't ten minutes later when I came to an open spot in the forest. Still deep shade, but softer somehow. I know these places. They seem to be places where there's extra moisture in the ground. The air feels softer, smells sweeter, It's more gentle. And it's in places like these where sick and aging animals come to either heal or to die. Like a hospice or a hospital. Sure enough, just over there, ahead and to my right, were bones. I approached. It was a magnificent buck skull. Antlers attached. Broad rack larger than the Sovereign that I'd received back in 2009. But these antlers were not pristine. These antlers had the look of a battle-scarred veteran. Something had gnawed on a few of the points. The antlers were an earthy dark brown, burnt sienna. The skull damaged, less than complete, a bleaching but not quite bleached white. Somehow it was profoundly compelling in its imperfection. I looked at the left antler in my hand. I looked at this amazing skull on the ground. Choose. I heard it clearly. Pristine, unique left antler, or battle-scarred skull. One is easy to carry out of the woods and offers the notion of completion, of balance. The other represents what? The Elder. This old buck, whoever he was, was an elder when he died. No longer in his prime. The antlers were broad but thin, much thinner than the sovereigns. He had seen much. He had experienced much. He had lived well. I hoped he had died well. I set down the left antler, said a prayer of gratitude, and picked up the elder. These experiences are hard to fully share because there is so much that is intangible and yet still deeply profound. Feelings of gratitude, of grief, of connection and communion, of loss and possibility. This old, graceful, majestic being had lived and died. I was honored being honored by the gift of his presence. There's so much to be said about elderhood. I turned 53 yesterday. I'm looking at my life differently now. For a long time I was the sharp young Turk on his way up the ladder. I was a force of youth, intensity, prowess, and the invincibility of a young man on a mission. Now,
1: those clothes don't fit.
2: In the tarot deck I am so fond of, the Tarot of the She by Emily Carding, the fifth card in the Major Arcana is not called the Hierophant or the Pope. It's called the Elder. It's one of the cards that I've had a deep and mystical connection to. It challenges me and it comforts me in turn. I know there is a time when gifts transform from potential to embodied and I know there is a time when the shining ends and the fading begins. These are uneasy lessons. They're humbling and challenging and come with obligations to share. They come with a requirement of self-acceptance and the acceptance of the flowing of life. I stood with the elder in my hands turned around to survey this resting place, take in the moment, the presence, the sweet and deep vibration of the place and the connection. I was profoundly moved. And as I surveyed the scene, not twenty yards away, shining brightly white in a dapple of sunlight, was another buck skull. You might imagine that I was taken aback, This kind of abundance, this kind of synchronicity. I walked with the elder over to this little place in the sun. There, on the ground before me, was a little four-point buck skull. His antlers were gnawed too, even more so. This poor young fellow had a very different lifespan from the elder. Who knows what brought him to his early end? Was he sick? Did he suffer a mortal wound from a bobcat or a mountain lion and make his escape only to meet his end anyway? I looked at him with deep compassion. Strangely, I didn't feel the same melancholy with him as I did with the elder. I saw him as a simple fellow, happy, goofing around the way young males do, pursuing his interests and passions with silly, perhaps reckless abandon. I saw in him a kind of openness and trust That made me smile. I looked at the elder in my hands. I looked at the little fellow on the ground. And I recalled the beautiful image from the Osho Zen Tarot deck of the zero card of the Major Arcana. A happy, gaily dressed young man stepping forward in confidence off a cliff. The Fool. You know, I aired my first show on Firefly Willow's L-I-V-E, this show, Convergence, on April 1st, 2012, April Fool's Day. I was still 50. I'll always remember that, a silly notion to start a radio channel in a world dominated by video with no reason or plan or strategy, but we did it anyway, and my first show was on April Fool's Day. And here we are, two years later, and through this experience, I have been immeasurably enriched. The fool is not an archetype to be dismissed, or a process to be ignored. It's a powerful, invigorating, revitalizing force that can and will bring a smile to your face, if you allow it. And it will bring you bumps and bruises, and gnawed-upon antlers, too, deeply profoundly ecstatically so the fool is the zero card in the major arcana because it is a place from which everything is possible though nothing is fixed there is no personal history here just the forward-looking emergence of possibility and youthful innocent enthusiasm gently I took the fool into my arms there I was the elder on my left arm. The fool on my right. A very different kind of balance. A very different kind of completeness. My return from the woods was quite different after that.
1: We'll be right back.
2: Hi, this is John Carassola, your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L.I.V.E., I truly enjoy putting this show together for you. It's an honor and a blessing to share what I learned from my guests, co-hosts, and personal travels. If you'd like to help, contributions in any amount are gratefully received. Send a contribution via PayPal to convergence at fireflywillows.com. Your support means a lot to me. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Well, that's our show this month. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, life is so full of opportunities to learn and grow, to embrace our strengths and our gifts, and to lean on them as we explore areas where we experience discomfort. It's never too late, too, to start anew. The process of awakening to our truer, deeper selves, to our deeper, richer capacities, is a lifelong endeavor. And we can use every sunrise... As a way to embrace that newness We can choose to make Every day A clean slate Whether you're an elder Or a fool Or a sovereign Or whatever It's your life And it's a gift Enjoy it Just a reminder that I'm at East West Bookstore In Mountain View on Fridays If you'd like to book a session With me in person I'm also available via email John.carousella At fireflywillows.com Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.
0: Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carasella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 1030 a.m.,